Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're taking the show to the 18th century with a novel that radically reimagines the life of Jack Shepard, a real-life king of thieves who captured the English imagination with his repeated escapes from notorious prisons. His life story made it into John Gay's Beggar's Opera and Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera and a dozen other adaptations. And the authorities found his stories so incendiary that the words Jack Shepard were banned from the English stage for a few decades. But Jordi Rosenberg's novel, Confessions of the Fox, just might be the best telling of the story we've had yet, with a spin that makes the narrative both more realistic and more strange than the story we've been handed down. But first, a quick note that this episode is a little bit longer than usual because it's actually two episodes. Stay tuned after the interview for the very first installment of our new audio series, Read Me a Poem, in which, as the title would suggest, Amanda Holmes reads a poem aloud beautifully. They're short, sweet, or not so sweet, depending on the poem, and the perfect little garnish when you've got five minutes left of your commute or jog or what have you and don't want to stop listening. There's a link in the show description so you can subscribe. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Jordi Rosenberg is a trans writer and scholar who focuses on 18th century literature and queer and trans theory. And his first novel, Confessions of the Fox, smashes those two disciplines together in a really innovative way by retelling the story of two notorious thieves, jailbreakers, and lovers of the 18th century, Jack Shepard and Edgeworth Bess, both real people who lived and breathed the fetid London air. Jack stole a lot, got arrested a lot, and escaped a lot, twice from the notorious Newgate prison, and was eventually hanged for petty theft in 1724. But in Rosenberg's imagining, Jack is trans, and Bess is the daughter of a South Asian sailor and an Englishwoman from the soon-to-be-drained Marshes. And Confessions of the Fox is both the title of the novel and the title of a long-lost manuscript that may or may not be their actual confessions. Those are discovered by a scholar named Dr. Voth, who obsessively annotates the novel and presents it to us, the readers, with an introduction and a ton of footnotes. Some, as we'll see, more helpful than others. It's a wild ride of a novel, a mashup of a thriller and a romance with a heady dash of pale fire and Tristram Shandy. 
We have a copy of Confessions of the Fox to give away, and we are going to use it to shamelessly promote the podcast. So please, tell one person that you're a fan of this weirdo little show called Smarty Pants. Write us a pithy review on iTunes and email podcast at theamericanscholar.org that you've done so for your chance to win a copy of Confessions of the Fox. And now, Jordy Rosenberg joins us from Amherst to talk about why he decided to rewrite history. Thanks for chatting with me, Jordy. Thanks so much for having me. So Confessions of the Fox is a very creative, very non-traditional retelling of the history of Jack Shepard, who is a real-life 18th century folk hero living in London. What do we know about Jack's life from the historical record that you found? And what kind of stories have already been told about him? I was reading about Shepard um, in the course of doing some research for my academic monograph. And I was reading a really great book, uh, which I probably should recommend to your listeners, um, by Peter, the historian Peter Linebaugh called The London Hanged. Uh, it's about uh, the history of capital punishment and the uh, intensifying criminalization of uh, property crime in the 18th century. And he has an amazing chapter on Shepard where he really details to what extent Shepard was this amazing folk hero uh, in the 18th century. He, he was executed in 1724, I think at the age of 20. Um, he had escaped from various prisons, including Newgate, like many times before that, at least four times, and he had broken his girlfriend, Bess, out of prison as well. When you get the rise of British imperial capitalism and commodity capitalism, you get this intense focus of the law on private property and protecting private property for the bourgeoisie. And Shepard was ultimately hanged for minor property crime. And Linebaugh has a lot of really amazing details on, um, you know, the extent to which Shepard was like even more famous than the queen. Like more common people knew Shepard's name than knew the name of the queen at the time. So I wanted to do some more primary source research on Shepard. There are two main major fictionalizations of Shepard's life. John Gay's Beggar's Opera, which became like the most well-attended opera in, in London to that point, and then Bertolt Brecht's Threepenny Opera. But there was an enormous amount of just kind of anonymous or hack writing about Shepard that I was interested in in the archives. Um, fake autobiographies of memoir, unauthorized biographies, and then also just sort of letters that would be written into newspaper broadsides, letters that would be written as if they were written by Shepard after his death, um, reporting from the underworld. Um, one of the things that I felt had fallen out of the, the John Gay and the, and the Brecht pieces was the extent to which Jack was represented as very genderqueer in, in, these, in the anonymous primary source material. He was, he was very often represented as kind of like extremely effeminate and lithe, and that was connected with his resistance to the prison system, that, that there was something about his embodiment that enabled him to kind of move through walls and get through really small spaces, and that also was represented as making him sort of legendarily sexy. So I, it seemed to me that it would be very interesting to write kind of a literalization and an, almost an exacerbation of this genderqueer aspect of Shepard from the primary source documents and just write him as trans. 
Right. And that's not the only liberty, I guess you could say, that you took with the the historical narrative that we have handed down to us. What, I guess, what ways were you trying to disrupt or change the story that's handed down to us about the 18th century or about history? Because this happens with a lot of eras, right? Like the Middle Ages were a lot weirder than we like to think of. Um, and so much of historians and, you know, theorists from the past 50 or 60 years have been about showing how actually, you know, they talked about sex a lot more than you think they would, or um, it was a lot more diverse than we think it was. So what were you trying to do? Well, yeah, they definitely talked about sex a lot more than than I think maybe people who aren't familiar with the 18th century might think that they would. And so the, the first thing is that I was working with these um, dictionaries of thieves slang from the period, um, which are largely devoted to descriptions of sex and genitalia and many diverse names for kinds of property crime. Like, it, that was really fascinating to me. Like, did you steal a horse? Did you steal a pig? Did you steal a piece of china? And it kind of reflects this massive influx of commodities that was the result of, and this gets to the second point of your question, the spoils of British rapacious imperialism, you know, largely from the global south and from the Far East. And so not only did I want to draw from those dictionaries of thief slang in terms of making the book very racy or, in my opinion, like appropriately racy to the period, um, but also to reflect you know, a London that, that we know to have been the case, which is uh, extremely racially diverse. Uh, London, you know, often in sort of mainstream historical fiction, early modern periods are represented as largely white, and that just wasn't true. And so you had sailors working on East India Company ships or pressed to labor on East India Company ships that were then basically abandoned in London, huge, huge communities of South Asian um, and Southeast Asian sailors. Um, of course, you had large communities of African people living in London, you know, even even before the 18th century that have been very, in many ways, erased from history. There are a lot of really great uh, scholarly books that are um, sort of resurrecting these histories, and they're listed in the resources. So this is a, a really broad question, and I guess it could be conceived as an existential one. But um, like, why did you pick the 18th century? Not just for the book, but what about the 18th century appealed to you in the first place for your studies? Like, sell the 18th century oh. to me. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that any scholar of the early modern period from like the medieval period through the 19th century will probably claim that their period was the period when modernity began to come into coherence and that is how they justify their work. So, I mean, I, but of course, it is the case that this is a moment of like really the explosion of and the intersection of the large-scale institutions that we understand as composing modernity. And in particular with this book, I was trying to look at, you know, the birth of modern policing. Of course, Britain, you know, London didn't have a municipal police force. It's, the police are so naturalized now. And um, the story that we're sold is like, this is a necessary institution, as if it always existed and always needs to exist. But of, of course, London didn't even have a municipal police force until the end of the 18th century. So the book is looking at the birth of municipal policing, what becomes the prison industrial 
complex. The sort of intensification of British imperialism and where Western conceptions of gendered embodiment start to come into coherence. I don't know if I just sold it to you. I should just also tell you, maybe I should just say like it was a super racy moment and <laughs> um, much more kind of pornographic when you go into the archives than we think of it. But um, The 18th century, I mean, is also home to Tristram Shandy, which in a lot of ways can be thought of as one of the first modern novels that makes a ton of references to things outside of itself, like your book does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess one thing we haven't talked about yet is that Confessions of the Fox features a ton of footnotes and is extremely self-referential. Uh, we've got this frame narrative, which focuses on Dr. Voth, a fictional scholar who introduces the manuscript with a foreword and then increasingly deranged footnotes. So he's our editor and, and something of a guide, at least to start. So when did you come upon the idea of setting up your radical retelling of this story using footnotes and using this very referential, very referential frame narrative? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Tristram Shandy is a book that, I mean, I, I do love Tristram Shandy. I, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a novel that I often teach and I really am always astonished by it. It's a very uncanny novel if you've read it. It's very strange to read it within the 18th century because so much of early 18th century literature is so unfamiliar to us because it doesn't have forms of character depth. It doesn't have forms of interior monologue. And then you get Tristram Shandy, which features in many ways all of these things and also this amazing kind of metafictional structure where, as you say, it's kind of referring back to itself as a fiction. And that was interesting to me. But even more interesting to me was the idea of thinking about the genre fiction and science fiction, which is the portal convention, you know, that we associate with Philip Pullman's Golden Compass or, you know, A Wrinkle in Time or, you know, where where characters go through a door and they move from one world into the next, right? That that worlds that seem to be very removed in time or space or in reality are in fact proximate to one another. I was interested to think about the footnotes as a kind of sci-fi, almost like a portal structure, indicating the proximity of the present and the, the 18th century past in terms of maybe a Marxist point, a political point, the resonance of the enduringness, the hauntingness of the formation of those institutions within the 18th century upon the present, that we're not really as removed from that moment as it might seem. And so I was thinking of that footnote structure on the one hand as that shandyish, winking comment on the fictionality of the narrative more broadly, but I was also thinking of it as just like a devotional relationship to science fiction and to genre um, as a way of sort of expressing something about the force of history upon the present, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I hadn't thought of the portal concept. Um, As far as the construction of it goes, I mean, how did you write it? It seems very difficult to write in one and then the other. So did you write the, the main narrative of Jack and Bess initially and then sort of spice it up with footnotes or pause and, you know, footnote certain things that Voth would want to note academically or experientially? How did the writing go? 
you know, I don't know. I think a lot of it was a little bit happening as it was happening. Um, originally, the novel actually had been this massive tome. It was like 800 pages, and it took place in three different historical periods, and they were sequential. It was like there was the Jack and Bess 18th century narrative, then there was an alternate present narrative, and then there was a future narrative. And then at a certain point, I realized... I kind of needed to chop those up and mix them in. I got rid of the future narrative. Instead of having the past and the present or the alternate present taking place sequentially, I really wanted to layer them. So it was more like a parfait. Like I started layering it in and removing it from its sequential position. I think a lot of novelists do understand that Revising involves basically exploding, tearing apart, and destroying everything as it stands and reconstellating it. It's extremely anxiety-producing process because there are like many nights where you just think like, if I was, if I die tonight, people will just find this mess. Like it's incomprehensible, um, and then you basically have to anxiously work to put it back together. Um, so, I guess I would say, yeah, there was. A lot of that footnote structure came from destroying a sequential narrative and then weaving them back in together. And so really you're dealing with like a tripartite thriller, right? And obviously this isn't like the first book ever to have done that, right? Pale Fire in some sense does it. I think House of Leaves does that. Um, where you have the thriller of the main body text, the thrill of the footnotes, and then a kind of overarching thriller structure in which the two are ultimately going to converge. What's interesting to me, too, is that through the footnotes, we really get to know Dr. Voth a lot more intimately than we do Jack and Bess, who are ostensibly the main story. I mean, especially as Voth's footnotes get increasingly deranged with a lot more oversharing than your typical academic annotations. That seemed like a really interesting contradiction. The Jack and Bess narrative felt very tight to me, like a very tight thriller structure. And the characters were also kind of tight. And in part, that had to do with trying to mimic and follow certain 18th century conventions of characters that, to some extent, are not told from as close of a vantage point as we're used to now, a very distant third person. And I think I became frustrated with it at a certain point, and I needed to loosen up and have a character who was more unhinged, and that's Voth. And I, I was very worried that Victory Matsui and Chris Jackson, my editors, would be startled or upset. The more, the more unhinged Voth got, because I started weaving that in somewhere in the middle of the editing process, but actually Chris in particular had said, I like how unhinged this character is, just go with it. And I found that very authorizing and helpful to me to have a reader say, we like that this is unraveling, go with that. Have a thriller structure which needs a certain amount of tight control married with a certain amount of unhingedness. Right. Well, and the footnotes too, like introduce a lot of concepts that are not necessarily explicit in the text or that are explicit and are a little bit shall we say, like out of time or out of place. I'm thinking of like Bess's declaration about the police state and like the theater of surveillance. I kind of rolled my eyes when I read that. But, you know, the later footnotes justify a lot of that 
were there a lot of things, I guess, in the main story that were subtext that you were worried might not come out if there weren't a footnote structure? Or were there things, ideas, political arguments that you were trying to make in the footnotes that might not necessarily have carried through in the larger text? Uh, I see. So are you sort of suggesting that, like, despite the fact that the footnotes appear unhinged, they're actually the most controlling aspect of the book in the sense that they're enforcing a certain reading or they're trying to of the body text, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In some ways, <laughs> which is kind of funny, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. Um, hmm. I accept, I accept your reading of that. Um, I think you're, I mean, you know, I, I think it is challenging to let go of certain forms of like scholarly fictions of our own authority. Was it compulsive? Was it entirely beyond my control to basically butt in and start declaiming? I think, you know, it is a metafictional commentary on is it possible to write a certain kind of historical fiction? You know, the very idea of historical fiction is a fiction. It's not really possible to write something as if we don't know what happened between the 18th century and today. Readers are used to getting to encounter character depth. And it's very difficult to write to a reader that no longer exists. Um, and so I think there is an extent to which as an author, you're always trying to solicit the desire of the reader. And whether consciously or unconsciously, you, you know that you want to give them something that pleases them. Because, as Barthes said, the author is only creating a minor disaster of static. It's all meaning is given by the reader, imparted by the reader onto the text. And so this question of writing historical fiction, knowing what 18th century novels looked like, but really not being able to give the reader that because the reader doesn't really want that. And so, um, and then ending up having to comment on it, I think, I suppose. You're asking me to psychoanalyze how the footnotes came about, I think, in a way. <laughs> Um, and ultimately, I think you, you can do a better job of that than I can, given that you're you and I'm me. That's fair. But I, I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring up Bart because in a lot of ways, Voth is the first reader of the Jack and Bess narrative and is sort of enacting that drama of the reader imposing, I guess, their reading on the text. You're, that's true also. <laughs> I'm sure you know that authors, it's very, there's a lot that comes up in retrospect that you don't realize while you're writing. But yes, I mean, I do think, you know, in a way somewhat similar to Pale Fire, and I was deliberate about this at least, I, I think Voth is a somewhat unreliable narrator, right? Voth's reading of what Voth ultimately believes this is, I'm not sure that the reader needs to take as truth, but I think you can read it as Voth's fantasy of what he wants or needs to feel that it is. Yeah. Well, I think what this line of questioning is giving rise to is the tension between being both an academic who talks and writes about fiction and also a now a writer of fiction giving interviews about that and wrestling with, you know, hundreds of years of theories about the author, one of which is that, you know, the author is dead. Right. So <laughs> what's that like for you? What's the tension like between reading academically and, and writing fictionally? Well, um, you know, actually, I 
I don't know. I feel like we're, you know, we're obviously inhabiting a different moment. I think actually when Barthes was writing about the author being dead, the idea of writing critical work with a utopian horizon was more naturalized. So we've become excellent theorists of the worst case scenario for good reason. We're in a very worst case scenario in general. But fiction was more of a home for being able to capture some of the contradictions of needing to describe the kind of baleful historical origins of the present, just the absolute disaster of our world, and retaining a utopian sort of orientation or at least glimmer. And I didn't know how to do that, and I don't know how to do that in academic writing at the moment. I think fiction felt like a place to do that. I can't recommend Jordi Rosenberg's Confessions of the Fox highly enough. It's a really ambitious story, not least because it tries to do so much so intelligently, all while managing to tell a really good love story slash thriller in the middle of the weirdo 18th century. I read it in about two days. And remember, tell your friends about the show, rate us, and shoot us an email at podcast at for your chance to win our giveaway copy of this killer book. And now, our preview of Read Me a Poem. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and listen to more poetry. My name is Amanda Holmes, and I think we all need more poetry in our lives. So I thought I'd kick off with Marianne Moore's poem, Poetry, because that was one of the first poems I was taught as an undergraduate writer at Emerson College. And um, I love what she says about imaginary gardens with real toads in them. So here it is, Marianne Moore's poetry. I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must. These things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. The bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, Elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however, when dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry. Nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry in all its rawness, and that which is on the other hand genuine, you are interested in poetry.
Thank you for listening. If you have observations and associations of your own about these poems or suggestions that you'd like to share, we'd love to hear your comments. You can email us at podcast at theamericanscholar.org or comment on our website, theamericanscholar.org. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.